Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 31, Deuteronomy chapter 23, continued. Well, we concluded last week after discussing only the first couple of verses of Deuteronomy chapter 23. And there's so much here in this chapter, we're still still not going to finish it tonight. Now, as I was mentioning, Rabbi Baruch recently published a superb article on our TorahClass.com website entitled Jewish Identity, Identity and the Torah, in which he deals with just how modern-day believers, Jewish and Gentile, are to consider the application of the Torah law to our lives. And, and he does a superb job with it. Now, he uses a little bit different terms than I typically use to explain, but the result is essentially the same. Whereas I tend to say God principles that undergird the laws, he will speak of the spirit of the law. Okay. Therefore, as we go through Moses' Sermon on the Mount here in Moab, right, in Deuteronomy, keep in mind that just as Moses was reviewing and in some cases explaining the principles behind these many commands because Israel culture was about to evolve from life as Bedouin wanders to that of a settled people, so it is that we have to adopt and adapt the principles behind these commandments to the much more advanced era in which we live. But always, it is the spirit of the laws that matter. And therefore, it is only the Holy Spirit living within us who can guide us to carry these, carry out these written commands in a way that is in harmony with the Lord's will. But as Yeshua said in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5:17 through 20 adapting these new laws to the evolving state of societies in order to retain that spirit of the law never meant that the law itself is dead and gone abolished or even changed okay. now verse 2 began a list Verse 2, chapter 23 of Deuteronomy began a list of who should be excluded from the kahal, the assembly of Israel. And we found that we should probably not take the word assembly to mean every element of, of, of Israelite society that together loosely forms the nation of Israel. That would not be a good definition. Rather, It is more appropriate to see the meaning of assembly, the assembly of Israel, the kahal of Israel, as the full-fledged and wholehearted citizens of Israel. As you can imagine, over the centuries there was a great and ongoing debate about just who could be included as part of this assembly and who could not. Who could have any and every right afforded to an Israelite who could only enjoy some or even none of those rights. You know, we really shouldn't be surprised at this concept of unequal, of an unequal range of rights for residents of Israel. 
As Americans, our laws create a number of distinctions in our society about what status we hold as residents within our society. If you're second or third generation American, you are a full citizen with all the rights accorded. If you are a new immigrant and you've obtained a green card as a means of legal residence, but you're not a citizen, then you have many rights and duties of a citizen, but not all. You may not participate in elections, for instance. If you're here without documentation, you're an illegal alien, then even though you may in many ways benefit or in some ways contribute to the economics of our society. You can't vote, you can't be in the military, you can't get social security. Theoretically, you can't even have a job. There is a status in between a green card and being illegal, whereby you have some rights but not others. Point is, ancient Israel was quite similar in its structure and the Torah explains what that structure is. Thus, from the time Israel conquered Canaan, through the era of the judges, then that brief period under, under David and Solomon where Israel was a single unified nation, on to the period of the divided kingdom and the kings, to the exiles of Assyria and Babylon, and then finally into the New Testament era, the criteria for being admitted into Israel as the kingdom of God and bearing the status of a full citizen, changed and evolved. Now, at the earliest time, there, of course, was no procedure, no formal procedure for a foreigner to join Israel. There wasn't any committee, certainly no paperwork. There wasn't even any ritual for inclusion or conversion. How then did a foreigner become an Israelite? Way, way back then. Usually by assimilation. A man and his family might move into one of the Israelite tribal territories, slowly adopt Israelite culture, and in time gain acceptability as good people. Perhaps they join in in some visceral way and observe the biblical feast, keep Shabbat, stop openly worshiping whatever God they had brought with them. Their children might begin life knowing nothing but a Hebrew way, playing with the other Hebrew children, just just blending in. Maybe a Hebrew man would marry one of these children. Soon they would have children who were now seen more as Israelites than anything else. Another generation passes, and no remnant of their foreign identity even remains. Nor would the new generation have any conscious identity with their foreign ancestors. They were now merely Israelites. As a matter of routine, the third and fourth generation former immigrants had their boy babies circumcised. Why? Because that's just pretty much what everybody did. And by all outward appearances, there was really no discernible difference anymore between them and the descendants of Jacob. Later, though, sages and eventually rabbis began to see the admission of foreigners into Israel as more of a legal matter. Right? And it needed official supervision, so they came up with several rigid guidelines for this. 
For instance, a Hebrew man was permitted to marry a foreign girl who lived in one of the Israelite tribal territories, and then such a thing instantly made that girl an Israelite. But in general, a Hebrew girl was discouraged from marrying a foreign man, even if he lived in Israel, because this now made her less of a Hebrew. And it put her on a possible path to give up her Israelite identity. The product of their marriage, their offspring. Now, this was problematic. What were these children of these mixed marriages in the sight of Israelite society? Were they Hebrews or were they foreigners? Now, this dilemma and how each generation of Israelites dealt with these problems of nationality and citizenship and ethnic identity and and, and all of this. This explains the fuzziness of the term we're about to encounter in the third verse of Deuteronomy 23, where it typically says in English that a misbegotten, or in some Bibles, a bastard may not become part of the assembly of Israel. The Hebrew word that's being translated here is mamser. Mamser. So, let's open up our Bibles to Deuteronomy 23, and we're going to read from verses 3 through 19. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 222. 3 through 19 of chapter 23. A mamser may not enter the assembly of Adonai, nor may his descendants down to the tenth generation enter the assembly of Adonai. No Ammoni or Moabi, an Ammonite and a Moabite, may enter the assembly of Adonai, nor may any of his descendants down to the tenth generation ever enter the assembly of Adonai, because they did not supply you with food and water when you're on the road after leaving Egypt, because they hired Bilam, the son of Beor, the son of Petor, in Aram Naharaim, to put a curse on you. But Adonai, your God, would not listen to Bilam. Rather, Adonai, your God, turned the curse into a blessing for you, because Adonai, your God, loved you. So you're never to seek their peace or well-being as long as you live. But you are not to detest an Edomi, an Edomite, because he is your brother, You're not to detest an Egyptian because you lived there as a foreigner in his land. The third generation of children born to them may enter the assembly of Adonai. When you are in camp at war with your enemies, you are to guard yourself against anything bad. If there's a man among you who's unclean because of a nocturnal emission, he is to go outside the camp. He's not to enter the camp. When evening arrives, he's to bathe himself, and after sunset, he may enter the camp. Also, you're to have an area outside the camp to use as a latrine. You must include a trowel with your equipment. When you relieve yourself, you're to dig a hole first, and afterwards cover your excrement. For Adonai, your God, moves about in your camp to rescue you and to hand over your enemies to you. Therefore, your camp must be a holy place. Adonai shouldn't see anything indecent among you, or he'll turn away from you. If a slave has escaped from his master and taken refuge with you, you're not to hand him back to his master. Allow him to stay with you. And whichever place suits him best among your settlements, don't mistreat him. 
No woman of Israel is to engage in ritual prostitution. No man of Israel is to engage in ritual homosexual prostitution. Nothing earned through heterosexual or homosexual prostitution is to be brought into the house of Adonai, your God, in fulfillment of any vow. For both of these are aberrant to Adonai, your God. Okay. Here's the thing. Scholars have a real problem dating the precise regulations listed in Deuteronomy 23 for who can be excluded from Israel and who must be accepted. And among these regulations, you see, is the question of exactly who and what is a mamzer. Now, the generally accepted opinion among Jewish and Christian scholars is that what, while what we read in Deuteronomy may have originally come from roughly the time of Moses, but more than likely from the time of his predecessor Joshua and then shortly thereafter, the examples that are given to us, along with the names of these nationalities of people, as to exactly who can join Israel and who can't, might have come just a little bit later, may have evolved a little bit over time, but understand whether these scholars are right or wrong about the date, the underlying principle of this commandment can be rather easily extracted from it. Let me remind you of something that we sometimes prefer to ignore. Believers, especially evangelical Christians, say with conviction that the Bible is infallible, and literal, and we need to take it exactly as it is, and that's because it's trustworthy. I completely agree with that. However, what that actually means, and how it's manifested, is a somewhat more complex matter. In this room today, I suspect we'll have at least a dozen different Bible versions being used. And when you hold them up in parallel, and sometimes I'll compare as many as eight or ten plus a couple more in other languages for study purposes, there could be some pretty significant variations. So, as you look at this chart, for instance, which exactly of these is the infallible one? Yeah, so you see the problem. Okay, when comparing the original King James Version to the more modern Life Application Bible or the, the, the NIV on the surface, some of these difference can, differences can be almost alarming. But in reality, the issue is more in the way that the English language has mutated rather than in translators attempting to assert entirely different meanings to the same passage, although in some cases that's exactly what's happening. In other cases, it's that the names of nations or cities have changed over the centuries, the older name being a relic, long since abandoned, so the latest name for a city or a nation is inserted in the place of the older name that's no longer used. Does that mean the Bible has been fraudulently changed? Of course not. For the average person, you're going to get a lot more meaning out of the Bible by calling Bethel, Bethel, instead of its more ancient name, Luz, for instance. So it's natural that as time went on and the Bible was recopied and sent on to the next generation, sometimes the place names would change to the most modern ones current in that day. 
The names of nations regarded as examples of evil nations might change because the nation as mentioned might now be extinct. Happened a lot in the Bible. So with that concept in mind now, what is this Mamzer who's included from Israel? Well, I can tell you with for, for certain that it's not about a child being born to unwed parents. A bastard, we'd say in our language. Rather, a Mamzer is the product of an unlawful union. Unlawful according to the Torah. An unlawful union of any kind. Okay? A mamzer is the result of some kind of an illicit mixture. And, and, and as my detour hopefully explained, precisely what that combination of people and circumstances defined a prohibited mixture evolved over time. In later rulings by Hebrew religious authorities, there were three presumptions made about the first nine verses of Deuteronomy 23 that helped them in determining how to carry out this law in its uh, proper spiritual intent. And it was using these three presumptions that they made and modified their various rulings about mamserim, plural of mamser, right, over the ages. The first presumption was that at the core of these verses is the assumption that it's dealing with marriage. Okay. Second, that any foreigner may convert to Judaism without exception. And thirdly, that the assembly of Israel should be defined as full-fledged citizens of Israel who are citizens because they were native-born and they were the products of legitimate marriages. Those were the three assumptions the sages used. And as a result of these presumptions, three presumptions, the law concerning the definition of who was a mamzer and what their status in Israel could be went something like this. The men covered by the restriction may not marry a native-born Hebrew girl. But they are permitted to marry a girl who was formerly a foreigner, but she converted to Judaism. Further, a mamzer living in Israel could marry another mamzer. This was perfectly legal. So a Jewish man could marry a foreign girl provided she was a convert, but a Jewish girl could not marry a man who became Jewish by means of conversion. Okay? Oh, these interesting rules. If any of these regulations were violated, then the resulting children of those unions were mamserim. But they certainly weren't bastards, and they weren't considered that way. Rather, they just weren't the products of unions of people that the Hebrew religious authorities deemed as Torah authorized. Therefore, as the children of religiously unauthorized unions, they were, the children were called Mamserim. Now, let me say this another way. 
It's not that the Hebrews decided that the marriage of, say, a Jewish girl to a foreign man was illegal. And therefore, when they had children, it would be just as though the girl got pregnant out of wedlock. Okay. Rather, it's that this is a flawed union. A union that should not have occurred under the ideal that the Lord's established. And therefore, the children of that union can never be assigned full citizenship in Israel. The children aren't shunned. They just don't have the rights of all the other children who are the products of authorized, Torah-authorized marriages. That's the rule for this. So this law, follow me here, this law of the Mamzer in verse 3 connects now with the law of verse 4 whereby no foreigner from Moab or Ammon can become a full citizen of Israel. Nor can any descendant of a Moabite or an Ammonite become a full citizen of Israel for ten generations. Why is this? Because it is said that during the Exodus, the Moabites and the Ammonites wouldn't assist Israel with food and water. Not only that, they even hired a sorcerer. Remember this? Bilam? To come and put a curse on Israel, which as it turned out he didn't do. In fact, the Moabites and the Ammonites are to be seen as people that Israel should have nothing to do with. Israel shouldn't necessarily go after them to harm them, but neither should they seek them as friends and allies, certainly not as potential family members. Let me say bluntly that these verses we've just studied right now have created all kinds of problems. As you can imagine. First is that most scholars take the admonition that no Moabite or Ammonite can become a citizen of Israel for ten generations to actually be kind of a poetic way of saying never, ever. However, apparently the ancient Hebrews didn't see it that way because in time Moab and Ammon became friendly to Israel and then intermarriage became common. Second is, if the number 10 means precisely 10 and not forever, well, then when do you begin to count, count off the 10 generations? At what point? Does it count when you start counting when Israel conquers Canaan? Do you start counting when an Ammonite or a Moabite first moves to Israel as a resident alien? Another issue is about Ammon and Moab not not meeting the Israelites with food and water. Does this mean that they refused to sell these essentials to Israel? They just didn't offer them as a gift. See, it's better to look at the underlying principles, you see, than to get involved in the precise names and numbers in this particular matter because we may never know exactly what this meant to the mind of the original writer. The first thing to understand is that is the second of the three presumptions that I mentioned. It is not that Ammonites and Moabites are to be excluded from living in Israel. There is no racial objection, nor are they to be treated differently from any other resident alien living among the Hebrews in the Promised Land. It's only that their status is limited. 
at least for several generations. A general principle of the Torah is that resident aliens are to be treated with respect. They're to be given full protection under the law. This went for Moabites and Ammonites too. But perhaps at the bedrock level of understanding why some foreigners are accepted into Israel and others are rejected, it is this. People who are involved in illicit unions or are the product of illicit unions or that are not physically whole, eunuchs, as an example, are rejected as candidates for joining Israel. Perfection, wholeness, is in God's eyes the requirement for holiness in both the Old Testament and the New. And holiness is bestowed by God upon all members of Israel. Priests were especially required to be whole without physical defect. A priest who who lost part of a finger in an accident or, or who had maybe a limb shrivel up due to disease, he couldn't even officiate at the temple anymore. Messiah says in the last verse of Matthew 5 during a Sermon on the Mount, therefore be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. See, the Lord used these examples that we're reading about in the Torah as illustrations of the need for perfection in order to be admitted to the kingdom of God. The point the Father was always making was that it was trust in Him and the acceptance of His grace. This is what clothed us in His perfection. This is what makes us acceptable in His eyes. Even for the Israelites, it wasn't righteous behavior that won you acceptance into the kingdom of God. It was grace. You were graced into the kingdom. It was observing after you were graced into the kingdom. It was observing God's laws and commands in their proper spirit that kept you in the kingdom, that kept you in harmony with God. Upon the advent of Yeshua, it is that He is to be our unstained garment of righteousness that we put on as a sign of our acceptance into the kingdom. Acceptance or rejection into the kingdom of God has at all times, in all eras, been a spiritual issue. Despite terribly misconceived and false doctrines to the contrary. It's always been about grace. The reason for the Ammonites and the Moabites having this special restriction against them seems to be historic in nature. When Israel needed help, they didn't give them any. Instead, Ammon refused to let Israel pass through. Moab tried to have Israel cursed. 
Further, they apparently sold Israel the essentials of life that they needed without offering it to them as the guests that they were. See, this was a great offense. Understand that in the Bible era, when a guest came to you, and that guest was usually a stranger, it was the custom to offer them food and drink as a friend. Certainly the guest would have offered to pay for it as a courteous response. And we actually see this offer, by the way, by Moses in the Torah to pay for food and water. He offered this. But then this little kabuki dance would occur in which these courtesies would fly back and forth until the guest either appropriately accepts the hospitality for the food or if there's too many guests then it would be unfair to expect these strangers to just give them everything the host would reluctantly accept some money for it. Anyway, Ammon and Moab insulted the Lord's people, therefore it insulted the Lord. So the wonderful blessing of joining with Israel then was held back from the people of Moab and Ammon. Don't ever think this idea or this example of what Yehovah expects of Gentile nations towards Israel eventually left Jewish thought or God's thought. Listen to Jesus' statement in Matthew 25, 34. He says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you whom my father has blessed, take your inheritance. The kingdom's prepared for you from the founding of the, of the world. Because I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you made me your guest. You see, so many of the passages of the New Testament and the sayings of Yeshua actually recall the ancient historical happenings of Israel's past that remain so embedded in Hebrew cultural fabric. Okay, Just as this statement of Messiah in the book of Matthew so eloquently says, those who the Father has blessed are welcome to come and take their inheritance as part of Israel. What's the criteria for being blessed? I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. This is why Torah class, all of you, Seed of Abraham Ministries, actively and constantly gives to and cares for God's people in Israel. It's our duty. It's our joy as believers to do this thing. Ammon and Moab didn't do this for God's people, so they were excluded specifically from joining God's people and from participating in the inheritance reserved for God's people, Israel. Now certainly Yeshua used this as an illustration of welcoming him But the point is that as Gentiles, we will have much about our actions judged, especially on the national level, about how we treat Israel. 
I've said on numerous occasions that we can boil down the way the Lord will judge every man on this planet as based on two things. Our individual decision on Christ as our salvation and on our national decision concerning our, concerning our treatment of Israel. That's how we're going to be judged. And as we've studied Torah for now for quite some time, carefully examining the Word of God in context, what now would you suppose is the Lord's stance on that portion of the church who sides with the Arab and Muslim world against His people Israel? And there's a big portion that does, folks. What do you think is Yehovah's position on believers who could care less about Israel? Or care less about the Jewish people and their fate? How might we expect to be received when we stand before Him in heaven? When we treat Israel as essentially the same way the Moabites and the Ammonites did. Let's get back to the subject of the moms there. By pointing out something kind of interesting. Ruth, an ancestor of Jesus, was a Moabite. Isn't that interesting? And she married a Hebrew man. Boaz. Were their children then Mamzerim? No. Because she converted to the religion of the Hebrews. Your God shall be my God, she said to Naomi. And because it was permitted for a Hebrew man to marry a foreign woman who converted to the Hebrew belief. Ruth's marriage to Boaz is proof that the ten generations of prohibition meant that. And further, that no nation was given, ever given, just a blanket exclusion from joining Israel. The key to being allowed to join Israel is exactly as Ruth pronounced to her mother-in-law, your God shall be my God and your people shall be my people. That's the key. As interesting as the exclusion of Ammon and Moab from Israel is the inclusion, I think, of Edom and Egypt. I mean, there there indeed is mentioned a rather short-term temporary exclusion of three generations for the Egyptians and the Edomites, but afterwards, apparently, all restrictions removed. And although I'm sure many of many Israelites of Moses' era would argue with God's rationale for this kind of unexpected acceptance of Edom and Egypt as candidates for joining them, his reasons for this are actually stated for us. He says, as for Edom, why is this? Because he's your brother, he says. How is Edom a brother of Israel? Edom is another name for Esau. Edom means the red, which is kind of a nickname. It's kind of a nickname for, for Esau, son of Isaac, who we're told had reddish hair and a ruddy complexion. Generally a lot like King David would have had. 
Esau's twin brother was <coughs> Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel. So indeed, Edom and Israel are brothers. They were fraternal twins. And the Lord intended on honoring that relationship. Further, even though what we generally remember about Esau and Jacob is how Jacob deceived Esau and took his birthright, and then how Esau intended to kill Jacob for that fraud, they reconciled when Jacob returned to Canaan from Mesopotamia with those two wives of his and a whole passel of children and servants in tow. The Lord had promised Isaac that he was going to bless Esau. He said, don't worry, Isaac. He's going to be blessed. Apparently, this was sufficient for the nation of Edom to be forgiven for doing essentially the same thing to Israel that Ammon and Moab had done. Because Edom, if you recall, refused to let Israel pass through their land and they forced them to march all the way around Edom. Remember this? All the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba and then all the way back up there, all right, to get up to the promised land. Now, as for Egypt, as unlikely as it would seem on the surface, the Lord has even reserved a special place in his heart for Egypt. Matter of fact, you look at some end times prophecies, you see this. In the end times, Egypt's going to be viewed as somewhat better than the nations that surround Israel, and they're even going to be given certain rewards for it. This is because it was in Egypt where Israel sojourned. Apparently, the Lord's kind of, kind of balancing out this, this great honor and respect that Egypt accorded Israel, at least when it first arrived, when Joseph was the vizier of of Egypt for about half, roughly, of their stay there, versus the hard oppression that Egypt eventually forced upon Israel during about the last half of their stay in Egypt that led to God rescuing them by means of Moses. Now, without doubt, this decision about Egypt was a practical as well as an ideal matter. (laughs) Because thousands of Egyptians had attached themselves to Israel as they fled Egypt. So impressed were they with the God of Israel. What was their status going to be? After a couple of generations, perhaps the first two generations of Egyptians were actually just part of the wilderness journey. The third generation could be admitted to Israel. Solved a big problem. Very likely, the descendants of those Egyptians that accompanied Israel from Egypt and who produced children and then died were almost instantly made full citizens upon the conquering of the Promised Land. Well, the next several verses, 10 to 15, now switches topics. And it deals with holy war. A little more specifically, it deals with the military camp itself, which is essentially what Israel is at this point in history. They're a military camp. Israel truly is God's army convened for holy war. Yehovah is the divine warrior leader. Israel is his troops. And since this is a war led by the Holy One, the camp itself must be held in sanctity. 
Therefore, we get some rules about just how to do that. And the general principle is stated at the end of verse 10. You're to guard yourself against anything bad, evil, raw. This is referring to being sure that all of God's rules and ordinances are followed scrupulously. The first rule is that of the so-called nocturnal emissions, an inadvertent flow of semen by a man. And when this happens, especially in God's war camp, he's supposed to leave that camp till he's ritually purified. Now, this is not some kind of strange superstition. Okay? It's really illustrative of a, of a profound God principle. All these laws are. I stated at the outset of the last couple of lessons that human sexuality is at the heart of this section of Moses' sermon and underlies the foundation of the entire Bible. So just as a woman is declared impure by the onset of her monthly cycle in her reproductive system, so is a man declared impure by an unintended emission from his reproductive organ. In one case, a human egg is, eje- is rejected as not viable. And in the other case, sperm is spontaneously ejected but without the opportunity to create new life. It's a problem. Impurity happens to both the male and the female in this case because of, as it would be viewed from heaven, a misuse of God's procreative system, even if it's unavoidable. Therefore, it's not called sin. However, by definition, this failure of procreation, whereby not all eggs survive, not all sperm meant for fertilization is put to its intended good use, the result of mankind's... This is the result, you see, of mankind's sinful nature, of our fallen condition, that this even happens. Death of the ovum and the sperm should never have been, for they contain life, precious life. None of them should have died. Therefore, verse 11 declares that this man, this soldier, who had this omission, must immediately leave the camp. He's to go to a designated place outside the camp. There, he has what I call a wash and a wait. He has to purify himself by bathing in water, and then he has to wait until the sun goes down before he can re-enter the camp. Recall that a Hebrew day ends at sundown. So essentially, what he's doing is he's waiting for the current day to end and the new day to begin. Then he can return. He can be be cleansed, and now he's restored. See, sin from all this only happens if the soldier doesn't follow this procedure. This points out again that while sin and impurity are related, they're not exactly the same thing. And therefore we find this biblical principle that while water is used for cleansing from impurity, only blood can atone for sin. Now please take notice of the principle 
of being sent away because of impurity, but being allowed back in once purified. Paul explains this principle of being separated, but then being taken back by using a different metaphor, the olive tree in Romans 11. And there he explains that although much of Israel became impure by not accepting Yeshua, should they change their minds, they can be made pure and taken back. Open your Bibles to Romans 11. Romans chapter 11. We've been there many times, haven't we? If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1415. Now this is a section that you're becoming very familiar with because it completely refutes an all-too-common doctrine that God has rejected Israel and replaced them with the Gentile church. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 especially deal with this issue head-on. So, I'm going to read Romans 11, 16 through 24. Just eight, nine verses. Now, if the hala offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and had become equal shares in the rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast as though you were better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember that you're not supporting the root. The root's supporting you. So you'll say, branches were broken off so they might be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. Because if God did not spare those natural branches, he won't spare you. Take a good look at God's kindness and His severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off, but on the other hand, God's kindness towards you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Moreover, those others, if they don't persist in their lack of trust, they'll be grafted in. Because God is able to graft them back in. Because if you were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back in to their own olive tree? Just as the man with the nocturnal emission is removed from the camp of Israel because he's impure, he can come back. Once he's cleansed in water. It's the same way for those branches. Certain Hebrews. Who were cut off the tree of Israel. Taken away from their rich root. Because they refused to accept their Messiah. God deemed them impure. But they can return. They can return. Once they're cleansed by being immersed in the purity of Yeshua and then atoned for, another procedure, by accepting 
his blood. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 13 is a law that is, of course, both practical and a teaching tool. It is that people who need to relieve themselves are to go outside the camp to do it. They're to take some kind of digging instrument, dig a hole, make their deposit and cover it up. (laughs) The idea is to have bodily waste all over the inside of the sanctity of the holy war camp where God walks is unthinkable. Now understand by the way, that the notion of God walking around that camp is used figuratively. It is meant in the sense of God's presence there. In ancient times, you see, the the, the picture of this came because in ancient times, uh, the owner of land walks his land as a symbol of his possession. And so they had this mental picture of this, and that's what's being expressed here. Chapter 23 then shifts gears again in verse 16 when it lays down the law of the fugitive slave. Now, contrary to all known laws of the Middle East, in Bible times, the Lord says that if a a fugitive slave, by definition this would be a foreign slave who's run away from his foreign master, if he comes into any of Israel's tribal territories, he is to receive asylum. In a nutshell, this is a law that bans forcefully returning slaves to their masters. The idea is that a person who's being held against his will by a slave master, which typifies an evil force, by the way, in the Bible, but then he manages to escape and he comes to the land that's been set apart for God's people, this person should never be rejected. They should never be forced to return. Isn't that a great picture? You know, there's, a, there's an important pattern set out here for us. We, as foreigners to God and to his people, escape our cruel slave master, Satan. And we run to our Jewish savior for sanctuary in his kingdom. The rule is that not only must we be accepted but that the king of this kingdom will never force us to return to our former slave master and to that former condition. Here's the pattern for it. Here in Deuteronomy 23, that spiritual principle is laid out in physical form so that we can kind of get a better picture of it. Now, even more, these escaped slaves are to live freely among Israel. They're not to be told where they can live, where they can't. They must not be ill-treated nor shunned. In God's eyes, they're just as valuable as those people who were natural-born free Israelites. Now, this next law in verse 18 is going to take a little bit of explaining. Because there's a lot of new understanding of what the primary subject is actually addressing. That which is usually translated in most of our Bibles as a cult prostitute. The law is that whenever a prostitute of either sex, whatever it is that they earn for their services, is never to be offered to God 
is a vow payment or a sacrifice or a tithe. And such a thing is aberrant to God because it's another example of illicit mixture. The money gained from this practice came from an unauthorized union, therefore the money, the fruit of that illegal union, is tainted. It's unacceptable to him. Now we've talked before about how sex was often used in religious practices in pagan religions, so let's take a couple of minutes to understand a little better just, just what all this means. Okay. One of the reasons that the term temple prostitute or cult prostitute is chosen as the English translation in this verse is because the Hebrew word used is Kedeshah. Kedeshah. Now, literally, this word does not mean prostitute. What it actually means is holy woman. It means priestess. But in Hebrew culture, this word took on a very derogative meaning, partly because in Israel's priesthood system, only men could be priests. There couldn't be any priestesses. And because this pagan female holy woman was by definition serving a false god or goddess. So nothing could be more indicative of an illicit union in every way. So the Hebrew word Kedeshah eventually became an idiom, a Hebrew idiom for prostitute, somebody who engages in an illicit union for pay. Okay. Now, while to this point, records of ancient times do not explicitly say that some of the female priests committed ritual sex for their gods, we have plenty of pictographs from those ancient times that obviously indicate they do. And some ancient narratives that also heavily imply this gross religious ritual. The most common pictograph is of a goddess meeting with a god for the purpose of creating a new god, their son. And there's every reason to assume that female priests would have had sex with male priests as a kind of commemorative drama to reenact that event. What is equally as disgusting, maybe more, is that the evidence is that some male priests would dress up and take the role of females and then perform the same ritual with another male priest. Well, you get the picture. Okay. Thus we have the, the reference to this term the wages of a dog, which was just a common idiom that meant a homosexual male prostitute. That's exactly what it meant. Now we have significant written evidence about the common connection between brothels and the various temples to the gods. Okay, The records of the incomparable Greek historian Herodotus give us graphic and rather detailed accounts of how and why this system operated and that it was modeled after long-standing customs of the pagans. Basically, there were two types of temple or cult prostitution systems. First, there were indeed houses of prostitution that were maintained by the temple authorities. And again, let me emphasize, I'm talking about pagan temples, not the Hebrew temple system. And these were income-producing businesses. 
The temple to the goddess Aphrodite in Corinth was well known as having a major portion of its income produced by its string of brothels. The second was that in some places, young girls who were betrothed were required to serve as prostitutes because it was supposedly honoring to the gods, since what they were doing was producing income for the gods' priests. Well, because in most Middle Eastern cultures since time immemorial, prostitution was indeed seen as the world's oldest profession, was accepted as completely legitimate, although not universally accepted, the temples saw it as an excellent opportunity to control a market that was quite lucrative. Basically, the idea was that the pagan temple would attach a a religious aura to a man spending his hard-earned money in a temple brothel rather than another one, a private one, operated down the street. A customer and the prostitute were both actually made to feel like they were doing something good for their God. Now let me close tonight with this thought. The problem is that there can be no more illicit mixture than taking gain that is ill-gotten in the Lord's eyes and then turning around and offering it to Him as a holy thing. Further, this points out the problem of His people, whether Jew or Christian, thinking that we can somehow mix the things of the world with the things of the Lord and then wind up with something that's good and righteous. Yeshua said to give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to give unto God the things that are God's. That's that's simply the New Testament way of putting forth this idea of not trying to bring things that belong in the sphere of the world into union with anything that belongs within the sphere of God's kingdom. Okay, we'll finish up this chapter next time.